This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. I'm Rich Bradbury. We're weirding again on Matt's Plane this week. Uh, Why are we weirding? Didn't we weird last week? Well, last week was kind of stealth weirding because... I said it was weirding, but if I'd said it was an episode about physics, then probably a lot of people might have turned <laughs> off. Um, luckily, it was, you know, a quite weird story about physics. Um, but even I had still, a lot of people give feedback, though, and say it was a great show. Oh, really? Oh, fantastic. Yes. Well, nobody's spoken to me, so I guess that's a good thing. Um, but yeah, even, even still, it was uh, mostly a, a single story. Uh, We did cover, I think, a a couple of the fun ones, like uh, the drug to regrow teeth. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, but really, last week was just a false flag operation to talk about physics. Mm. Um, And so, you know, because there's a a whole raft of stuff that I want to cover in more depth over the next few weeks, like AI. uh, No, I'm just kidding. I mean... Yeah, exactly. There, there will be AI, but there will also be other stuff. Um, cool. CRISPR, UFOs, working trends. But that working trends actually brings me to the first story for today, which uh-huh. is relationship exit interviews. Eh? Hey? I'm trying to imagine the, the angle that you've got on this. Well, apparently this is a growing trend that has sort of grown out of a TikTok meme. So... Uh-huh. Uh, a TikTok comedian and content maker called Stephanie Diagostini, who posts on the site as Steph Dag. Uh, She posted a funny survey that she said she'd sent to a guy who ghosted her after a date. So she based it on those, you know, awful long-winded exit interview surveys that some companies ask you to fill out when you leave but she updated it with questions like you know explain why you ghosted me um and sample responses were things like you know i'm too good for you um (laughs) and you know it it rounded off with a a request for the guy's contact details and also for his mum's contact details so that uh, she could set up a a group chat Um, (laughs) and you know then then ended with a list of uh, compensation requests that the uh, ghoster could uh, opt for in order to meet her emotional distress so was it meant to be light-hearted then or uh, you know a little bit of fun just to remind the guy that he was being a bit of a uh, um mummy's boy maybe Uh, pain in the pain in the posterior Exactly. I, I, I think it was exactly that. It was, you know, kind of making a, a serious point in a kind of gentle and funny way. And I, th- I right. think that's something that we perhaps see too little of these days. So mm. with the video, she posted a link to her survey so other users could download and alter it as they uh, saw fit. I think this was back in February or March. And the video just lit up. It's um, sparked its own corner of TikTok with thousands of other users posting their own videos on giving exit surveys to, to exes. But it seems to be either spawning or riding on a wider trend mm. where a growing number of people seem to be sending out um, surveys or um, some sort of, um, you know, sort of precursor information to potential dates before their first meeting. Uh, huh. 
you know, as I've, I've mentioned on the show before, I've never used dating apps or internet dating, as the dad joke goes, because my wife won't let me. <laughs> boom, boom. Uh, yeah, I've never used one either. Um, but I, I'm, I am very glad that you didn't try to get me to say that joke. I mean, I was tempted, but, you know, there's only so much social punishment than, that I can heap on you. I mean... <laughs> I made Jeff leave, yeah. poor guy. I think I, I broke I broke him. He's had to go off and be a successful COO just to get away from me. <laughs> but, um, you know, jokes aside, it's, it's one of those areas of technology that I find myself at kind of a disadvantage because it's something I haven't experienced. It's something I'm probably not likely to experience. And again, not because I'm not allowed, um, because, you know, I'm not in a position where I need to or want to. Mm. And I wouldn't want to be one of those people who sets up, you know, a fake profile just to see how it all works. But from a kind of societal point of view, it cuts me off from a huge portion of social behavior, uh, emotion, which <laughs> I know my chips don't <laughs> process too well to start with. So stories like this are interesting because it's a way for me to get a window on, you know, on relationships and how people kind of interact in a romantic sense. Well, you know, people are already saying that you're you're somewhat robotic, Matt. I mean, this isn't really helping you sound less like a machine, though, is it? I mean, nothing really does, so I don't bother anymore. Um, but the <laughs> thing that sort of really got me interested is that people are now starting to, as I said, send out these surveys to people before they agree to meet. And I guess this is very much a kind of Gen Z thing. And the idea is that it sets out their expectations from the date, from a potential relationship. And to someone like me, um, possibly to you too, it might look quite transactional. But then all of my dating experiences have been organic. People right. that I've, I've met in some capacity, you know, met physically. Mm. If most of the people you go out with are just faces on screens or bits of text from an app, I imagine this kind of behavior would save a lot of wasted time. I mean, it might be a bit weird the first time someone sends you a kind of code of conduct <laughs> before you actually meet them. But I think it's the kind of thing that could become the norm quite easily. You know, it might not look romantic, but how often is it romantic when the first time, you know, that first time that you meet with someone, right. the first time you meet someone is usually quite stressful. Especially, especially if it's you. Well, I mean, I'm quite charming in person. It's only later that people realize it was a, a subroutine. But, um, you know, these organic relationships where you meet a stranger and you hit it off, that first meeting really is that pre-screening. It's mm. that thing where you, you decide, is there enough there to, to warrant a date? So I kind of get this. But what I don't get is a, is a kind of evolution of this, um, and it's probably smaller and more niche. This is the dating exit form. Hmm. So this the idea behind this is that you send your ex a survey and ask them to let you know the good points and the bad points of dating you. Uh, and given you know that most relationships dwindle into something between apathy and hatred, I can't help that thinking that that way kind of madness lies. Uh, a, a piece I read on Huffington Post quoted someone who'd created, um, again, like the, the original ghosting survey, a kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, 
exit survey for for some of her exes. And she was kind of unprepared for how blunt some of the responses were. Yeah. So, you know, even in the most amicable breakups, feelings are still quite raw. So Mm. I don't see the uh, kind of dating exit survey catching on anytime soon. Interesting, though. Um, Okay, then. So what other, um, I guess, earth shattering news um, have you found this week? Well, Netflix has invented a new green screen technology. Huh. And it isn't green. It's magenta. Yeah. Somebody else was talking about this. Yeah. Tell me more, though. No, magenta's great for me. Um, red is much more my colour than green. I, I kind of look like a mouldering corpse in uh, green light, um, which was always a problem when I was working for brands whose primary colours were, were green. Um, I will be honest with you, I'm kind of having more trouble understanding this story than I did the gravitational waves we spoke about last week. Um, I've never been very good at uh, spectrum, uh, light spectrum type stuff, but I have seen the product videos and I kind of understand what it does, just maybe not quite how it does it. So first of all, I mean, for most of us, green screen technology is pretty standard and uh, straightforward. Mm -hmm. So the idea is if we have green, green, green screen technology, why do we need something new? Well, Green screens are are kind of great when you just want to add in a background. So actors on CGI heavy productions, they often perform in a studio with a green screen and everything that you see when you watch the movie is kind of added in later. In fact, those backdrops might not even exist at the point where the human Mm, actors mm. do their thing. They might not be created until, you know, maybe even a year after that, that, that production. But green screens do have drawbacks. It's hard for directors to see the background in real time as the actors do their thing. So it's quite difficult to get people on their marks, get people on their places and know when you've captured the shot. Uh, Green clothing, of course, can appear transparent because it just melds into the background. Mm -hmm. And the technology has problems with transparent items things like glasses things like bottles so on film shoots you actually have someone who sits there manually tuning uh the green screen and of course that adds to the time and therefore the cost that it takes to capture that scene okay then so how does uh red light help to solve these issues i know we have blue screens as well right but how does red as well yeah Yeah, how does red light solve these problems well on its own it doesn't so netflix's new system which is actually called magenta green screen oh because Um, that makes sense exactly (laughs) um so the actors and this is why i'm having a bit of trouble um the actors are still shot against an illuminated green backdrop but they're lit from the front with red and blue leds and when those combine they create that magenta hue okay in those leds all of the pixels have their own value and this is basically where i get confused so essentially in the green screen uh the foreground where the actors is is basically captured as black whereas with the red and blue pixels they record the green screen as black so you end up with these two areas where you can put in these two different layers of content essentially okay so i think i've sort of got that that right um and that differentiation between what's shot as foreground and background enables things like those fine materials and uh, transparent materials all of that can shine through without being affected by the green screen behind because basically you're 
casting a light on the things in front and the thing behind is black. So it allows uh, the scene to be positioned more quickly and you can superimpose the background onto the director's monitor screen to make sure that the capture works. But then wouldn't that make everything in front of the screen red? Yes. So the system (laughs) then has to use AI to recolor the scene. Huh. Okay, stealth AI. Yeah, so, I mean, you'd have complained if I said it was an AI story up front, so I said it was a Netflix green screen technology. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, um, everything is magenta, it's kind of pink, and then it's reprocessed. Um, And that's why items like green clothing and bottles work fine, because a still image is taken before the shoot, capturing the true colours of everything on the set, and then the images are processed to return them to the original colour, to remove that magenta light. Now, obviously, this is new technology, so we've yet to see how it works in a a full-on production. But because it's something developed by Netflix, I imagine we won't have to wait too long before we we do see it. Uh, Now, I read the story on New Scientist, and some of the film techs they contacted commented that the recoloration process makes production more complex as it introduces yet another step so i guess it's whether it saves time and money overall you know that that flexibility you get while you're capturing does that offset the additional production time Uh, and of course you know you mentioned blue screens this isn't the only potential replacement for green screens where we've mentioned you know many times before unreal engine is increasingly Mm. being used to create and shoot uh, especially graphics heavy content in new ways um but yeah see green shoot red add ai for reality or something yeah um i think we've got time for a quick one before the break yeah. Um, did you know that uh, there's a, a world shortage of glitter? Is that because Taylor Swift's going on tour? <laughs> it could be. Um, I didn't think of that. That's not one of the examples. Um, no, but this is this is a, a theory, again, on uh, corners of TikTok at the moment. Um, this story came uh, from IFL Science, where all the best weird stuff comes from, uh, including lots of stories that we can't cover on this show, which uh, <laughs> we might find a way to, to bring to you over the next few weeks. Uh-huh. Social media is uh, complaining, despite there being pretty much no evidence, that we're in the middle of a global glitter shortage. Uh, the theory rests on the fact that actually just two companies produce most of the world's glitter, um, a company called Glitterex and a company called Meadowbrook Inventions, which are both based in New Jersey. And Glitterex, which is the biggest producer, refuses and has always refused to disclose who its biggest customer is. No spoiler yet, Richard. Um, so, so there's this um, element of, uh, you know, conspiracy theory around this supposed world shortage of glitter. Couldn't it just be like, you know, some giant hardware store or some Christmas yeah, card manufacturer? Exactly, or, or craft shop or yeah. something. Um, you know, um, this is the thing, though. You know, due to the fact that you really can't get rid of glitter. I mean, it's worse Mm -hmm. than Christmas tree needles. Um, According to IFL Science, 
it's even been used as evidence in crimes because it's so hard to remove from uh, clothing and crime scenes and different locations. Yeah. But it is used in a lot of other applications. Uh, apparently, again, I didn't know this, zoos and wildlife folks mix glitter into animal feed so that they can track certain animals or groups of animals through the glitter in the feces. No. Uh, yes. Um, obviously, cosmetics industry, um, various types of paint. So cars use glitter. Guitars also sometimes use glitter in the paint. Mm -hmm. So the conspiracy centers around this huge customer who is supposedly dominating the global supply of Glitter. So theories include the boat building industry, which apparently doesn't uh, want to admit it uses glitter because it's not very sailor-like and macho. Um, <laughs> there's a theory that the military uses it in stealth coating for aircraft. I, I did hear that, and I also heard that they used it for the... Is it the chaff that they use to mess up with missile guidance systems? Yeah, the anti-missile mm -hmm. defense systems that, that planes have. So um, I, I didn't know about that one. Um, some people think that luxury resorts mix it with the sand on their beaches to make the sand sparklier. Um, Interesting. Or that, yeah. Or that it's added as a kind of fingerprint to commercial explosives to trace them in case those materials are, are misused. Uh, another theory is that it's used in bulk in toothpaste of all things. What? Uh, yeah, and that the companies making it don't want to own up to using glitter because obviously there's that potential environmental impact. Um, and that environmental impact is, you know, a really big issue when it comes to mm. glitter because, mm. you know, what do we actually need glitter for? There have been uh, calls for it to be banned as, um, you know, some glitter may take up to a thousand years to biodegrade, meaning the glitter might last longer than some of the species it's uh, glittering the feces of. Oh, very nice. Uh, but I'm not exactly sure how I'm supposed to round off some of these segments. Um, hopefully less of that after the rain. Um, we're going to twinkle off and we'll be right back after these messages here on Matt Splained on BFM 89.9. festive moments. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury and welcome back to Matt Splained again. We're weirding out uh, today and uh, Matt let off an enormous glitter bomb, uh, making sure that I've said that right. Um, just before the break, no more of that, Matt, please. Come on. Okay, then, you know, you know the rules. That means I default to AI. Um, sure, okay, can't fine. Can't do something, whatever. go back to AI. Yeah. Uh, now, a lot of Malaysian students will be getting ready to head out for their first semesters at uh, English language universities locally and overseas. So this is a, a, a piece from The Guardian. We mentioned a while ago that the makers of AI systems like ChatGPT and all the, the rival language systems mm -hmm. were also going to make tools available that make it possible to identify text created by a machine. 
Yep. Which is, you know, kind of critical for all kinds of applications, academic work from student work to papers submitted to journals, uh, for news stories as well, for identifying items that are fake news or disinformation, uh, or for companies who are paying, you know, a human writer to produce human copy and mm. not a machine to do it in nanoseconds. Um, now, we might do something on uh, input engineers, so people who input the prompts for yeah. um, for AI uh, in the future, following a, a discussion I had with a friend recently. So there are lots of reasons that we need tools like this to identify AI. But it turns out they also have a tendency to identify copy written by non-native English speakers as being machine generated. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll get into the, the details, but, you know, this is problematic for quite a number of reasons. I'm, I'm guessing, you know, part of that is the inherent, the systemic biases that we've, we've outlined on the show before as well. Yeah, you know, identifying people like me more readily than women or people with darker skin, uh, creating images or content that perpetuates stereotypes. And now we're seeing these kind of biases being reflected in uh, the world of AI text generation as well. You know, anecdotally, um, a lot of foreign students seem to find their work under additional scrutiny. Uh, Southeast Asian students, for example, facing scrutiny that they're cheating because they write English too well, for example, wow. uh, simply because faculty don't know that, you know, hey, people speak English over here, um, or for not speaking and writing it well enough, especially somebody who can write quite well but doesn't speak very well in English. Mm. You know, mm. you can't really win. Uh, a, a study at Stanford University ran 91 essays written by non-native English speakers through seven of the leading AI detection tools, and they were flagged as being AI generated in a massive 90% of the cases. Do you think this is because of the pattern recognition systems that they use? Yes. Yeah, so the, the machines look for repeated or simplistic patterns in the text. So this is called uh, text perplexity. Uh, generally, AI demonstrates low text perplexity. As the lower the complexity, the easier it is to, for the machine to predict what the next word should be. That's mm. essentially how AI systems create copy. They write one word and decide what follows the the next word, it's kind of an additive, additive process um, versus the human method of expressing a concept or an idea. And then you kind of find the words to to shape and express that. Yeah. So native English speakers are likely to demonstrate higher text perplexity as a result because they have a larger pool of models. They have a larger vocabulary to draw on. For someone who's learning English or they have, you know, a reasonable level of proficiency, the text or the text that they write is likely to rely on a smaller word pool and a smaller selection of sentence structures. Hence, the AI detectors flagging those essays as being machine generated. And I'm sure you've got a wonderful groundbreaking revelation where you drop the solution for us right now. Well, there doesn't seem to be one here. Um, the study's authors note that it could actually push foreign students to use AI more. In fact, um, they found that they could take those essays that were human written, but flagged as being written by an AI. They could plug those essays into ChatGPT and ask the machine to essentially upscale the language. And that upscaled text then fooled the AI detectors. So, you know, this is a bit like those examples of AI 
being asked to write code, the code doesn't work, but then the same machine that wrote it can somehow debug the code, but not right. write the code. Yeah, um, yeah. So this system is kind of likely to persist. Um, and it comes back more to having these codes of conduct about how we use AI and using mm -hmm. it ethically in situations, whether it's in schools, workplaces, or, or wherever. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with someone using AI to upscale their writing, whether it's for an essay or a, a job application, you know, unless somebody specifically wants to test your you know, written language skills. Uh, it's when you start to use it for content generation, for ideas, for arguments, for facts, that's when it goes beyond those mm. gray areas. And the simple reality is these language models, this AI is likely to quickly evolve beyond the point where other machines can detect it. So it's more about not so much finding a solution, but finding a, a way to adapt and evolve our norms as fast as the technology is developing. Well, I mean, that's fine if you're a quantum bot who experiences these shows in the past. Um, obviously, I mean, I've just been to the John Webb telescope and back in the time it took you to say that sentence. Uh, uh, but, you know, it, it doesn't mean that I'm anti-meat suit or that any of my machine brethren are. Um, on the subject of which the UN's AI for Good conference took place recently in Switzerland, uh, they turned my application down. Apparently, I'm bad AI. Uh, but the uh, event held was uh, uh, it held what was billed as the first AI press conference with nine robots from different manufacturers taking questions from the press. Uh, again, I think I found this on Guardian. So they point out in the piece that it's unclear how many of the responses were pre-programmed and how many were, you know, actually natural responses to to the, the prompt. Mm. Uh, and there were delays between the questions being asked and the machines responded, which the organizers said was down to lags in the internet connection rather than any lags with the machines themselves. But interestingly, the machines had different viewpoints on whether AI was a potential threat to humanity. Uh, Ida, the art robot that we've talked about on the show before, mm -hmm. his work uh, has exhibited at the uh, Vienna Biennale and has sold for tens of thousands of dollars. Ida pushed for regulation and discussion about the uh, future role and scope of AI, while another machine said that uh, AI could lead more effectively and efficiently than humans, which is highly reassuring. Um, so it would uh, suggest that the jury is definitely out even during a conference called AI for, for Good. Um, but would you like some Good news about fake news. Sure. I'm always down for good news about fake news. Okay. There is an ongoing Cambridge University test, or thanks to a, an ongoing test, there's now a scientific tool that will test your susceptibility to fake news. Uh, you can go and try it out for yourself uh, at uh, yourmist.streamlit.app or just Google Cambridge University fake news test. That's probably a lot easier. Uh, so the test gives you a choice of uh, 20 headlines. Some 
are real headlines and some were created by chat GPT. Uh, you click on whether you think the headline is true or false, whether its premise is true or false. And mm -hmm. at the end of it, you fill out some basic information about yourself, things like gender, the country you live in, your education level, that kind of thing, nothing, um, you know, too revealing. And then it gives you back your test score and rates your susceptibility based on that information you gave it about education and places that you live. Um, now, obviously, I'm not going to share any examples of the questions. But I'm imagining that as a source of fake news, uh, you scored quite well. Uh, yeah, I actually got 18 out of uh, 20. And I have to admit, I'm kind of annoyed because I thought I'd be better. So a couple of people after I posted it on threads, uh, one person, uh, a friend got 18, somebody else got 19, somebody else got got 20. I thought, you know, margin of error, I'd probably score about 19, possibly a 20. So 18 was a bit of a shock. And I really want to know which two I got wrong because the survey doesn't tell you that, I guess. Oh. Yeah, I guess that's so that you can't coach other people and you can't mm, sort of come mm. in and throw the results off. But it is a really useful reality check. And I think it's something that we could all do with, with taking, especially um, as it rates you against, you know, the, the kind of average person, as it were. Mm. So it was uh, quite a sobering experience, especially for those people like me who think that, you know, there's no way we can be hoodwinked online. <laughs> um Okay, then, what are you going to uh, play us out with today? Well, um, it's kind of a bit of a downer of a story, again, from IFL Science, but it does sort of tie the last couple of stories together, the, the AI and the fake news stuff. And this is the idea that loneliness actually affects our brain chemistry. So this is an area that researchers have been interested in for a while, but which the lockdowns and isolation of the pandemic have, you know, thrown into sharp relief. So this is a study from uh, USC Dornreif. Uh, they took 66 first-year university students, all aged between 18 and 21, and examined their brain processes in an fMRI machine. Hmm. Now, before the scans, the students had to complete a questionnaire on their experience of and with loneliness. And according to the results of those surveys, they were split into uh, lonely and non-lonely cohorts. When did we start using the term cohorts, by the way? it's I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's annoying and it... it, it starter culture-ish and it, it sounds like something you'd find in a yogurt that's been in the fridge for too long oh my gosh look at that cohort uh, uh, which reminds me uh, uh tangentially how, how's your campaign for pickling going absolutely nowhere uh, i spread uh -huh. my pickles far and wide across threads but uh, no bites of the pickle so far very very disappointing uh if you want to know more about pickles or threads you can check out uh, last week's episode emma P255, where we talk about pickles in great detail. But back to our non-lonely cohort. Basically, the people in the fMRI machine were played uh, various video clips to mm -hmm. see how they responded and how their scans looked in response to those images, how their brains processed those clips. Now, amongst the non-lonely participants, it was very similar. The, the brain patterns were very similar, suggesting that they thought and processed information in much the same way. Amongst the lonely groups, the scans were 
very different. The lonely participants were actually processing that data input, that information in completely different ways. But are, are, are we looking at a cause and effect uh, here or being lonely makes you think differently or thinking differently makes you lonely? Well, I think they need to do more to determine that. But it seems to point to lonely people being lonely because they think differently. It puts them outside the group because their thought processes and reactions aren't the same. They don't fit the the dynamic. As right. I said, you know, those images in the non-lonely group showed a, a lot of shared thought processing. But crucially, the images amongst the lonely group were all different from each other. So they mm. were different from the group, but also different from each other individually. Uh, so it wasn't that non-lonely pe people think one way and lonely people think another. It's that lonely people think differently from other lonely people. You know, we've all seen that, that trope or truism, oh, such and such doesn't have many friends, let's connect mm. him or her with somebody else who doesn't seem to have uh, a lot of friends. And you do that, and it turns out those two people hate each other. <laughs> Sounds like you're speaking from experience. Pass, we'll leave that for another day, uh, <laughs> when there's a, a psychiatrist and some mood stabilizers <laughs> in the room. But um, it is interesting. The, the research showed that those who felt the most lonely, even if they had friends in a support network, the people who felt most lonely showed the biggest drift from those communal patterns. They thought the most differently from the group thing. Mm. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, what does this tell us? Well, if you feel lonely and different, it may be that you actually are. And it's not an indication that there's something wrong with you. You know, it's just that your brain is running Linux when everybody else is running Windows. But on a, a practical level, it may help mental health professionals, behaviorists, um, you know, psychiatrists working to work on targeted solutions to help alleviate those feelings of isolation that many lonely people feel, but also to let them know that there's nothing necessarily wrong with not fitting in. Uh, wow, I think I managed to end it positively. Maybe there is room for me in society after all. Maybe there is indeed, Matt. Maybe there is indeed. I'll get you some glitter as a, you know, as a, as a congratulationary uh, well done thing. Goody, yeah. glitter and mood stabilizers. I'm in for a great weekend. If I can find some, at least, that is anyway. Uh, thank you very much. Good show today, of course. Now, um, if you want to follow Matt and make him feel less lonely sometimes, uh, subscribe to his Substack newsletter. It is culturepop.substack.com. And of course, you can find him on all of those socials, including threads where he is, of course, Pickling solo. <laughs> king pickle. <laughs> He's a king pickle. We will be back, of course, same time, same place next week here on Matt Splained on BFM 89.9, the business station. to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.